Number one is planting roots update. If you have been part of our planting roots journey, we try and give you an update at least every month at this point. So we are 72% of our way through the journey. Uh, we have 57% of pledges that have come in. With all giving, we're at 63% of that 72%. And again, two months ago, we did the remix. So there's, you don't know what planting roots is. Planting roots is element needs a permanent home. So we're moving towards that. And planting roots is a journey we did together where you guys said, yeah, we want to help make that happen. So that's kind of the numbers for that. Uh, yeah, if, I, sir, I spend everything on Amazon. So I'm always Amazon smiling it because it makes me happy. It, it feels like Christmas every day when a package comes. You're like, oh, that's not for me. I don't care. <laughs> I love packaging the come. Christmas Eve services, 7, 9, and 11 p.m. on Christmas Eve, obviously. The first one has child care up to preschool available. Uh, the, and, I, and I promise, there, there was a year apparently that I really made everybody mad with a comment about the Jolly Red Man in a red suit. And I will not dash any kids' hopes and dreams this year. I promise there's nothing for you to walk out here and be angry about this year. And that is not something I can normally say. So, there. So, 7, 9, 11 p.m. Again, Christmas Eve services, they are usually packed to the hilt. We have an overflow room for it. So, if you want a seat, come like 15 minutes early. I know element time is like 15 minutes late. No, come like 15, 10, 15 minutes early if you want a seat to any of the services because they're always full. I, I love Christmas Eve. I love Easter too, but I, I just love Christmas Eve. It's like my favorite night of the entire year. And we put a lot of effort and energy into it. This year is no exception. So it'll be pretty cool. So there's that. And I, st- I wrote this thing here. And again, I have no idea what it means. So apparently I'm supposed to say something, but I can't remember what it is. Anybody remember what I'm supposed to say? No. Okay, great. Welcome to Element. You can be like, say this. Okay. Welcome to Element. Uh, if, if you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. Uh, inside, you'll get notes to go a little deeper into what we're talking about, as well as some questions to go deeper into what we're talking about. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on Live and then Events in Uversion, and we'll come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Hello. Sorry. Uh, once you down, you're reading God's Word. We'll get started. If you guys hated last week, you're really going to hate this week, by the way. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, and it says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And we're like, what in the world? Exactly, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a good God who has given us good gifts like sex. And I ask that we would understand it properly in context of what you say and what you mean. And that you would teach us to live in ways that honor you in all things, so that you would gain great glory and your people would live in great joy. Amen. Let's see. All right, so it is almost Christmas. I love it because I can see everybody's lights, so I feel like I can see Christmas from here when people put their lights up. This is the next to the last week in our series called What in the World? It's about things you read in the Bible sometimes, and you're like, what in the world does that mean? Why did they say that? Uh, we're covering these, these things sometimes make you scratch your head and wonder. Next year, uh, we will do a part two, which is all about your questions, all the things that you have What in the World questions about. So if you uh, would like to write one of those on one of the 
the 3x5 cards on the communion tables or on the back of your sermon notes. There's a QR code right there. You can scan it with your smartphone. It'll take you to a website where you can type in a question. I actually have more questions than I have weeks to do it next year at this point. But if you ask a question and it's really good, I will bump somebody off the list. (laughs) You are welcome. And the thing is, only you will know. Be like, oh, he's answering my question. Oh, wow, someone else must have gotten bumped. Oh, sweet. So anyway, it'd be kind of cool. Uh, again, we're going to start that after Easter next year, all of your what-in-the-world questions. Today, I will give you a Christmas present a week earlier. We're going to talk about sex, the Bible, and what it means to have real intimacy. And I know if you are someone and you brought, like, your parents for the first time, you're like, oh, my goodness, what do I do? Don't worry about it. They had you. They know what it is. You're going to be okay. Uh, our world gets so weird when it comes to the subject of sex and churches and the Bible and that God thinks sex is bad or something. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Sex is amazing. We hope for all of you to have that in marriage. And I know sometimes when I talk about sex, some of you guys are like, I hate it when he does this. I'm not going to be vulgar or anything today. I don't think. If I am, tell me after we're done. But I highly doubt I am. So... Just go with me in this. Um, I, God thinks sex is great because he made us, you know, to go together with certain nerve endings in certain places. So he thinks it's great. Element is pro-sex and how God created it to be done. One man, one woman, one lifetime. Statistics actually bear me out in that. It works better than any other contrivance that men have ever come up with from hooking up to affairs or whatever. Statistically, people who wait for marriage to have sex actually have more sex and better sex and they enjoy it all of their lives. Uh, The Bible thinks sex is awesome and that's why we're going to look at what we do today because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. If you have an NIV, it will say it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It said no man ever, except apparently Paul right here. So we're going we're gonna to find out what, what that actually means. So I want to lay out to you today a biblical position, no pun intended, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that Paul would have known <laughs> about sex. And again, why do we do this? Well, first off, it's Christmas, and also as a church, we got to be aware of how our culture talks about it, of how people around us talk about it, and how we should talk about it in a way that honors Jesus. Because in America, sex is God. It really is. It's like a religion. And people give their money and their emotion and their, and their energy and their time to it. A professor at the University of Virginia in the sociology department compiled this list of statistics three years ago, and I want to read them to you. Uh, The average person in America has their first sexual experience at age 16. Uh, The girls who are teenagers and are sexually active have higher rates of alcohol abuse, drug use, eating disorders, and depression, and suicides. One-third of children are aborted. A third of children that are born are born outside of wedlock. Pornography in our world is a $60 billion a year industry. In America, we spend more on pornography than we do on pro baseball, basketball, and football combined. So uh, baseball is not America's favorite pastime, apparently. Uh, In the last 10 years, Americans have spent more on pornography than we have spent on foreign aid. So if you say, we need to help people in foreign countries when all these disasters strike. Well, if you quit looking at porn, we apparently have double the amount to spend on our foreign aid. Over 200 pornography films are made in the U.S. every week. That is more than one per hour. Porn sites are 12% of all Internet sites. Porn is 25% of all search engine requests. 30% of Internet users cop to viewing pornography. 20% of men say they do it at work. 13% of women say they do it at work. Every second, $3,000 is spent on pornography in America. 
28,000 internet users are viewing pornography every single second. Hopefully not right now, by the way. Uh, 90% of 8 to 16-year-olds have viewed pornography online. The average age that a child now sees pornography is 11 years old. Sometimes that is inadvertently, sometimes not so much. Number one viewers of pornography are boys 12 to 17 years old. If you have a boy who is like 12 to 14 years old in your home and you have not had the talk, statistically, you are too late. You need to get on top of that because they are getting their information from a horrible source. If a kid is 12 to 17 and you've got a computer in their room with internet access and no safeguards, you're a dummy. Okay, you, seriously. And if you're, oh, my kid said he doesn't do that. They are lying to you. Little boys like boobs, and they will lie to you. Okay? I wouldn't look. Yeah, I love you, son. Safeguards on that thing or pull it out. Don't believe their craziness because they're all. 10% of American adults admit to being addicted to pornography. 28% of that 10% are actually women. Uh, 10% of men are addicted, but 70% of men say they had visited a porn site. Age 18 to 34, 70% of men men said they visited one in the last month. 55% of child abusers and 71% of child molesters are self-described sex addicts. 90% of prostitutes were molested as little girls. And if we don't talk about it, guys, our entire culture is talking about it. So we must talk about it because our culture worships sex. We are meant to be a people who worship Jesus first and foremost above everything. Sex is not God. God is God. Sex should not be worshipped above God. And unless we understand it in context of the scriptures, sex will not be treasured or valued and it will be separated from God. So we talk about what we do today because I think it's really, really important. And I think because we misunderstand Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7, in our present day world, Christians have a very poor view of sex. You only hear about what we're against. Fornication's bad, adultery's bad, porn's bad. Okay, yeah, they're bad, but what are we for? Where's the positive? You know, there are even some older Christian women who have written books. I had a friend who actually had one, or his wife had one, and it said, sex is for men. It's gross. You're not going to like it. Missionary position only, only for making babies infrequently as possible. As kind as I can be, that's crazy talk. That is crazy talk, because that's not in the Bible. And I, in first service, I, I have a few jokes I'm going to kind of, in the middle of this today, nobody in first service laughed, because they're like, am I supposed to laugh? Oh my goodness, what do I do? It's okay, you can relax a little bit. I think God loves our laughter. God loves it when we can connect things in the idea of being able to laugh in the context of things. So you guys can lighten up today just a little bit. Uh, there, I, I think that some people view sex as gross because some people have been molested and abused, and, and you might see sex as gross because your experience has been gross. Sex is not gross. What happened to you is sin. It is sin, and it is horrible. And if you have been sinned against, or maybe you're somebody who has sinned a lot in an area like this, we have a thing at Element called Redemption Groups. We would love to introduce you to that, and it would walk you through helping to understand how God's love can transform you, how you can understand who he is in the, in the context of the scriptures. Romans 12, 2 says we're to be renewed by the renewing of our minds. Redemption Groups help us, helps us to understand what God is doing in the context of our lives. So I want to show you a video. Uh, this is Matt's redemption story. doesn't have to do with sex, so don't worry. You don't have to hide your kid's eyes or anything like that. It's just Matt's redemption story, and I thought it was good to kind of put it in the middle of this before we start really hitting in this. So this is Matt's story. My dad would always had, had said to me the last few years, you know, we want you to live a fulfilled life. And uh, I never quite understood what he meant. And when uh, the Holy Spirit really kind of broke down my 
my walls and my hardened heart and let me start feeling the things and the, the, the gravity of salvation, um, I started to understand fulfilled life. I went into redemption group thinking that I didn't need to be redeemed. I expressed to the G's that I'm not an alcoholic, I'm not a drug addict, um, not a sex addict. I, I know I'm a sinner, but I, I, wasn't, um, I wasn't sure what I needed redemption from. Um, with no expectation, I began reading the book uh, and participating in the classes. Uh, John, Mike, and Eric with love, kindness, and some hard words began to help me understand my need for redemption. For me, my identity was solely stuck in um, being a subject of my my past. So whether it's, you know, um, you're divorced, and so you're then labeled that way, or um, even just being the beer and wine guy, um, and everybody having that expe expectation of that's who you are, um, kind of shaped how I lived my life. Um, and how I thought about myself of, you know, I'm just going to do this because everyone or my own self was telling me that's what my identity was. Um, where being a child of God, I get to do what God wants me to do, and, and it's um, that's what I want rather than just wanting exactly what I want all the time. You know, when you feel entitled, you basically you run to things that you don't necessarily need, but because you think you deserve them, they make you feel good. Um, and a lot of that for me is food. Uh, just having a bad day, choosing to eat out rather than go home. Um, and that was, that was a huge thing. It really changed me physically going through Redemption Group. So that's, that's where I see my identity changing. Is it's, it's more about what does God want for me um, and how does God want me to live a fulfilled life it's not how Matt wants to do it, it's how he wants, him, wants me to do it. I've realized that I want to be a part of God's story uh, rather than trying to write my own story, which has turned out uh, self-destructive and very uh, not very fruitful. I'm so amazed at what God did during the nine-week period of Redemption Group. Um, it really uh, was completely unexpected where he was going, what he was planning to do, and, and where he's taken me. Um, he continues to work in my life, uh, drawing me to repentance. Um, I recognize that, that I'm going to remain a sinner for my entire life. Um, it's not something that we just magically stop doing, uh, but having the freedom from guilt and shame and that our identities don't rest in our sins, um, that our, our past don't dictate our futures, and that every new day is a new day. Um, it really is just a very freeing experience, um, and to have that understanding is is uh, nothing short of a miracle. I missed that at the end of that video every service so far. I'm standing back there hanging out with people. So this is the deal, guys. If you feel like you, you just can't bring some of these thoughts and ideas together and you'd really love to spend some time with people talking through the ideas of redemption, sign up in the back. The next one starts in February, uh, especially as we start to process through this whole thing about what sex is and stuff.
today. Uh, we, we learn in the context of scriptures that, that sex is a gift. It is given by God to us to steward, to enjoy, to protect in the context of marriage, to share. It's to be treasured and saved and given and cultivated in marriage because that's what we call a covenant relationship. God says this in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. He says, My people have committed two evils. These are the two. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And two, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what God is speaking about is the truth that he gives. Metaphorically, he says it's like clean drinking water. And I keep bringing my people clean water to drink. I give it to them. And when they, they don't want that. They go right out and they dig their own holes out of the ground. They drink muddy, nasty water. For us today, this would be like the wrong counselors or the wrong websites or the wrong magazines or the wrong movies. They're all giving us muddy water like out of a hole. And God keeps saying, I have good water. I have clean water. I have pure water. And we're like, no, 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 I'm going to go drink this nasty water instead. And we get sick because our culture is sick. And in the scriptures, you see sex was given for multiple reasons. I'm going to give you five. Number one, for pleasure. Woohoo! Okay, that, that, that's a good one. You, you have this book called The Song of Solomon. It is a whole book about sexual intimacy. And you know the book never even mentions kids. It's just about pleasure. Proverbs and the Song of Solomon both talk about taking delight in one another. Guys, it says her breasts should make you excited always. See, it's good stuff in the Bible. And I'm telling you, if sex was only for procreation, guys would get an erection once every nine months, and that would be like it. But we don't, right? It's not what, when, how you do it. It's who you do it with. That's why we say in marriage made for pleasure. Second thing, it was made for children. That sounds really bad. It's, it's made to have children. And Genesis 1.28... Got to be careful how you say these things, right? <laughs> Woo! Genesis one twenty eight, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Children are part of the blessing that can come out of marital intimacy. Third thing is oneness. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh, live in one house, sleep in one bed, worship one God. It's for oneness and comfort. Fourth thing is comfort. After David and Bathsheba, they lose a child. 2 Samuel 12, 24 says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And then she will eventually bear a son named Solomon. But it tells you that even in the midst of their grief and their heartache, when their world was falling apart, they shared their bodies as comfort to one another. And then fifthly, it's for protection because we have desires. And those desires should be met in a covenant relationship that we call marriage. So we're not open to all this temptation to do all this other garbage around us. And that's where Paul actually goes in 1 Corinthians 7. Martin Luther, the church reformer in the 1500s, wrote this. The ultimate purpose of marriage is to obey God, to find aid and counsel against sin, to call upon God, to seek love and educate children for the glory of God, to live with one's wife in fear of God, and to bear the cross. These are all these things that he talks about that it brings. But then he says, but even if there are no children, nevertheless, to live with one's wife in contentment and avoid all lewdness with others, he says, that is great, great gain. And when people think about churches and God and sex, they think it's unrealistic that God says, stop having sex outside of marriage. And people will say, that's how it used to be, but times have changed. Christianity just really needs to get with times in society. And for some, that sounds really logical, right? Oh, yeah, we should just move along with society. Do you know when Christianity kind of first came into existence after Jesus rose from the grave? It was way outside of cultural norms, way more than it is today. 
And they didn't change back then because they had a unique understanding of what this purity was actually going to bring in the midst of their culture. They understood its appeal. And if we change to match society, all we are saying is that Christianity is some person's idea. It's not something that was revealed to us by the grace and goodness of God. And so the real question is, what is it that God actually says about sex? What does he say about it? What's the concept of sex that's embedded in the heart of the scripture so it's embedded in the heart of Christianity? And how did that actually triumph in the ancient world? I mean, seriously, if it could transform Rome, maybe, gasp, it might even be able to transform America at some point. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul right there, he's actually answering a question. Paul doesn't say those words. This is what they said to him. Someone at Corinth said to Paul, Can you explain why it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? And Paul basically says, "Uh, No. Um, And he comes and he starts to answer that question. He says that sexual desire is so strong that we should get married and have sex. And in the context of 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, Paul is essentially responding to two philosophies about sex, other than the Christian view, that were in the Greco-Roman world of the time. And these are really the two views of sex in our world today. Number one is what's called the Platonic view. This comes from Plato. Yeah, not the stuff you get and mold into shapes, but Plato with a T. Okay? Even today, we still use this word platonic, and it means friendships or sexist relationships. They're platonic. We still use that. And then the other side, you have this thing that's called the mystery religions. And I'm going to greatly oversimplify this, but where the Platonists would say the body is bad and the soul is good, sex has to do with the body, therefore sex is bad, the mystery religions would say, well, when you get hungry, you eat, and when you get thirsty, you find something to drink, so when you get sexy, you sex. It's just what you do. If you feel an appetite to have sex, well, you do it. Anything else is repression and it's unhealthy. That's kind of where our culture is kind of going today. So those are the two views. I'm going to call it the prudes and the pagans. I'm just going to call it that so we have an idea of what it's about. And we still have those views. And Paul very carefully and very vividly says Christianity is neither one of those things. It is neither one of those things. In Romans 7, we're told that God relates to us metaphorically like a husband relates to a wife. It says that we put ourselves in God's arms spiritually. He bears fruit into the world through our body. And it says that married love, the sexual act, the reproduction that comes from that act is a picture of God's relationship with us. In the Old Testament, God is constantly saying, I'm the husband and Israel is my bride. In the New Testament, it says Christ is the great bridegroom and the church is the bride. That doesn't mean when Jesus returns, you have to put on a dress if you're a dude. That's not what that means. It means sex is a model and a foretaste of the ecstasy of knowing him perfectly. Tim Keller writes this. He says, in heaven, when we know him face to face and we enter into a union of love with him and all other people who love him, on that great day, there's going to be a deep delight and a towering joy and a deep security of such nature that the most rapturous sex between a man and a woman is just an echo of it. And I love those words, but I cannot even imagine what, that, what that's going to be like. I, today, too many Christians get tossed back and forth between this prudish and this pagan view of sex. If you were raised in a Christian home, you're probably told, oh, we don't talk about it. Or if you talk about it, it's like, oh, sex is dirty and it's dangerous, so save it for the one you love. Which, those are weird words right there, right? Oh, we don't, we, don't, we don't talk about it. It's very prudish. And then kids go off to college. It's like, bam, and it's just all pagan everywhere. It's college campus right there. And to various degrees, college students will get involved sexually with other people. And deep inside, there's a confusion and a pain. And they don't know what to do as they get older. So what they eventually start to say is, well, I'm just going to live this way because that's what our culture says. And I'm not going to listen to God at all because all I do is feel guilty when I think about that. 
and we start to think that God has no idea how to really conduct things in our lives. Guys, sex is powerful. It is fascinating, it is mysterious, it is exciting, it is a remarkable creation of God. It is unlike anything else that God gives, and it is a gift. And we are always trying to unwrap it early or unwrap it in all the wrong ways. The thing that people really don't like about Christianity, and this is what you'll hear, is its view of sexuality. People always want to ask questions. Well, how about this? Well, if God says that... I'll tell you, sexuality in Christianity is complete freedom in marriage. Do whatever you want. Hang from the chandeliers, buck naked. I don't care. In marriage. And you ask people a lot, and they say, well, I can never do life that way, this proper stewardship of sexuality. But honestly, how is our culture's way working for people? It's not. It's not. Our divorce rate's over 50%. People live in regret and loss of hope. With every single breakup, they feel lonelier and lonelier. I told you this story a couple of years ago. Andy Stanley was talking about this. And a lady in her early 30s came up. And she's navigating her dating life. She's just become a Christian. So he talked about this sex thing like I'm talking to you about it. And so she says, i got a question about this sex thing. Uh, the other night you're talking about this, you know, no sex outside of marriage kind of thing. She goes, that's for teenagers, right? It's not really people in my... Well, she'd been married and divorced, and she's dating again, and she was sexually active, and she said, that's not really for me. It doesn't apply to people in my stage of life. Like, can't we get with the times? Like, what do you say? His answer was brilliant, because he actually asked her a question. This is her question. He said, has sex outside of marriage made your life better or just more complicated? And she actually teared up. She said, my life has become a lot more complicated. Because we can tell ourselves it's just bodies, it's just tissues, it's just nerve endings, but we know it's not. We know sex is not just sex. And whenever you think about the Bible, we all know this is true. And yet everything that we watch and read today tells us, oh, no, 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 it's it's just nerve endings. But we all know differently. We all know that. Because probably almost everybody in this room at some point in some way has messed it up. I mean, I know I have. We have all been in that place. And there's something so deep around sex. It's more than biology. You know why? Because sex also has to do with God. And surprisingly enough, the Bible has a lot to say about God and sex, too, okay? You've got to begin to see and embrace why the Bible says sex is for this absolutely permanent and fully committed relationship where you give your whole self, mind, will, and emotions, where you're completely committed to somebody else. Why? Because sex in the Scriptures is shown as a model of our relationship with Jesus. This total love and total submission of, in this complete relationship with God a total union with him, the joy that results in the day when we see him face to face is supposed to be amazing. Sex is marvelous. Sex is wonderful. And so what Paul does is he not only moves against the prudes, he moves against the pagans because he'll say flee sexual immorality. Paul will talk about how wonderful it is. He says, but on the other hand, sex is not just an appetite to be satisfied. Imagine you go to your doctor, okay, and, you, and you're having health problems, and your doctor says, well, it's the way you've been eating, eating for the last 30 years. It's, it's going to kill you. You're going to have a heart attack any moment. All these foods that you want, you better not eat them, because if you do, you're going to die. So you go out with some friends, and all of a sudden, right in front of you, this big, juicy steak and potatoes with butter and sour cream. I don't know if that's your thing. That's my jam, so that'd be, that'd be awesome, okay? And you, and, you sit, and, you, and you sit down, and if you eat that, it's not going to taste like poison. It's not. It's going to taste wonderful, just like it's always tasted, but it is poison. Because your appetite is out of accord with what you actually need. And the scriptures say this is what we have done with sex. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 
Tim Keller uses this example. He says, he says, imagine you go to a foreign country, and you're trying to figure out what this culture is like, what they're based around, you know, how they grew up and things like that. So you go to a college dorm room, and you look inside, and you see that as soon as these kids get away from home on their walls, all of a sudden they start putting up all these posters of hot dogs and pies and hamburgers and steak, like all the juicy bits, right? Yeah, those things. And then you go downtown, and you find these clubs. People pay like a cover charge to get inside. Everybody sits around a stage, and there's like poles on the stage, and the lights are low, thumping music. I know, I can't beatbox, whatever. So... And then out in the center, somebody comes walking up, and they swing around the pole, and they have this thing in their hand. They slowly pull off this ten times of the music, right? And this this sheet, and all of a sudden, boom! There's a hamburger. Everybody goes, "Ooh, ah, make it rain!" <laughs> what would you think? You would think either this culture is starving, or this is a place where their appetite is severely disordered, or both of those things, right? If someone came to our culture from another planet that didn't have their entire life and their sexual appetite disordered by sin, they'd come and they wanted the exact same thing about us because of how we treat sex in our culture. It is everywhere. You cannot watch a show without there being like, in the middle of it, hey baby, let's get it on. Why was that there? I don't know, but we stick it every... Oh, that sounds bad too. We... <laughs> you can't even talk about it without saying something like, see... Everything's an innuendo. Yeah. So why Paul quotes the pagan philosophers, okay? 1 Corinthians 6, 12, and 13. He quotes them, all things are lawful. But then he says, but not all things are helpful. Oh, no, no, but all things are lawful. That sounds like our culture, right? Totally. And he says, but I will not be dominated by anything. And then he quotes them again. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Oh, hey, if you know what I mean. And Paul says that God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And for someone to say a sexual appetite is just like any other appetite, if we had an appetite for food like our appetite for sex, we'd all be a thousand pounds or dead because that's how we treat it. The truth is, sex is God's ordained way, that's designed way to say to another human being, I belong completely and exclusively to you. Paul will go on in 1 Corinthians six fifteen to 17 and say, don't have sex with a prostitute. Not just because it's degrading to have sex for money, but because anybody you have sex with, you become one with. You become one with. Sex is a way to say to somebody else that I belong completely and exclusively to you. And if we use it to say anything else, it becomes a lie. So Paul runs through all of this in 1 Corinthians 6. Then he addresses their questions in chapter 7. This is how it goes. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with the woman. Again, that's what they said. That's not what Paul says. So Paul says, because of the temptations to sexual immorality, that's not saying sex is bad. It's saying that it's such a strong desire in us. If we don't use it correctly, we're going to sin with it. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to, to his wife her conjugal rights. And we say, sweet, done, right? And likewise, the wife to her husband. Sweet, done. Okay, just checking, all right? Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The Song of Solomon has a beautiful way that it says this. The lady in the Song of Solomon says, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. That's how, and it's a beautiful way to say that. It is mutual submission, mutual respect. It's what we talked about last week. This all makes sense in context. 
Paul says, you guys have written to me, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but I will tell you that God designed us a certain way. So you should get married. You should. You should enjoy one another. Why do I tell you this? Well, because marriage is a gift as sex is a gift. And I think God calls us to keep it pure in the context he wills for his people. It's a gift when we go to the scriptures to learn from him. So I'll give you two things as we close. Number one is this. I think the only real cure for loneliness, and statistically speaking, Christmas is one of the loneliest times of the years for certain people. Sex only points to this thing that we are all supposed to live in, and that is intimacy, intimacy with the Father. The only real cure for loneliness is intimacy with our God who made us. And secondly, when you misuse sex or sexuality via pornography, it works backwards. Instead of making us feel less lonely, which is how we think it's supposed to work, it usually ends up making us feel lonelier. That's what happens, because sex, again, is a signpost to what will really fulfill humanity, the intimacy we need. And when we use it improperly, it makes us even lonelier, because God isn't our goal. The sex thing is our goal. I mean, I think even marriage, you turn it into a goal or an idol, is just going to lead to more idolatry and more loneliness. If you think life without sex is lonely, I think it is far lonelier to use sex outside of the covenant that God intended. Because God designed it to bring us together and help us to understand him better. That's how good he actually is. Now, what happens if you fail? Because, honestly, we all have failed at some point probably in our lives. Guys, don't get discouraged. Have hope. Have hope. God doesn't leave us in a place where we just deal in the midst of all of our, all of our sin. I'm like, well, I'm hopeless. No, you have hope. Because Jesus has promised to love us and to heal us and receive us. Jesus can take all of our past and everything we've done, even everything that was done to us, and mold it together to make us into people who live the rest of our lives in ways that honor and glorify him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Jesus came and paid the price for us. He says, So glorify God in your body. Just like God gave his son for our sins so we can be redeemed and understand the truth and grace he calls us into, we are never going to have a redeemed view of sex or sexuality and intimacy without a redeemed heart and without a redeemed life. And this is why I talk about what I do today, two weeks before Christmas. Next week we'll have a lot of fun. We'll talk about Joseph being a dad to Jesus and how awkward that's got to be when you get ready to like, do I yell at the son of God or, you know be a little bit of fun. But, but we talk about this today because the ultimate question for us, especially coming into Christmas, is... Do you know Jesus? Has your life been surrendered to him, his grace, and his love? Because if you have never, if your life has never been found in Christ, what I say today is going to make no sense to you. You keep running the same direction, and your life is going to feel lonelier and lonelier. So the place you start is, we need Jesus. We all do. I do. You do. We've all been in places in our lives where we have stumbled, and we have fallen. We've done the exact opposite thing that we know that we were supposed to. Yet God still comes and he seeks us and rescues us and redeems us because our God is simply that good. He is that good. He does not leave us to our own devices. He does not say, well, you better go figure it out. He's the God who steps into our world in the person of Jesus. Again, this is what Christmas represents, that he came to rescue and redeem and didn't leave us just to our own failings. He came to bring us home again. He came to rescue and redeem us. And this is why we come to this thing called communion every week. Communion is where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. It was broken in the ways that we are all broken. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, it reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me because his blood was shed to redeem and restore us. And that's what we remember there. 
It's, it's not magical, but it, but it is kind of spiritual. And we remember that we lay down our lives there because our God has come to bring us wholeness and intimacy, first and foremost with him and then with others. He has been a God who has come to restore broken relationships. The man's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back, and if you need prayer, maybe you're in a spot today where you're having all kinds of issues with what we talked about today. They would, they would love to pray with you about that. And maybe it's Christmas time and you're feeling just really lonely, and you would like someone to pray with you and, and, and talk with you. They'd love to do that. If you have any prayer requests, they'd love to pray with you through those things. There's offering boxes on the sidewall on the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is then part of our worship. Uh, we don't pass the plates. It's a response to what he's done. There's some food in the back. And as I always say every week, grab something to eat, maybe ask each other some questions, although it might be awkward today. <laughs> Here's a donut. So, tell me about sexual intimacy. Well, you know, but maybe you have some close friends and stuff. You can maybe talk through some of the stuff and how you think those things relate or don't relate. Maybe you think I'm full of garbage. I, I don't know. But maybe you can talk about that and go a little bit deeper and begin to deal with some of these things. Guys, because I will tell you, our God is good. He has, he has given so much joy into our lives, and I do not know why religious people always want to try and steal and rob the joy that God wants to bring into our lives. It's like, here, fundamentalists, I don't understand why fun is even in the name, right? Because what's the deal? God is a God who longs to bring grace and hope and joy, and we are meant to be a people who live in this world in that great joy. So let's begin to live in it. Let's begin to trust him enough to actually live the way he calls us to live to honor him enough that all of our lives are found in who he is so the world would know how great and good our God actually is. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that you would teach us what it means to live and walk in your ways, to trust you more than we trust ourselves. And frankly, we so, so readily trust our own ideas before we trust what you say. And I ask that you begin to help us to change that. That the deep conviction in our hearts and in our souls would be to honor and trust you above all things. That especially to come into this time where we celebrate your birth, we wouldn't forget the death or the ultimate resurrection. And that you call us into a great and wonderful eternity with you. And I ask that we would begin to live lives that live in that eternity starting today. That the kingdom that we look forward to will be lived out in our lives in hope, in grace extended to others, in love extended to others because we have understood that you have first loved us. And we would live committed lives in a way that brings hope joy and restoration because you have brought all of this to us first. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.